I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, the show where we explore political outrage in its many forms and discuss different ways of looking at the world to help us develop a healthier relationship to politics and especially to our feelings about politics. The hope, and I include myself in this aspiration, is to cultivate a perspective that's less frustrating and more satisfying, not to eliminate outrage, but to help us make better use of it. Outrage is a powerful force, and it's really easy to let it take us over and ride us into further outrage, and then on into anger and frustration and fear and a desire to destroy our political opponents rather than confront them in an open and productive way. I have a sense that if you're listening to this podcast, you're not opposed to going through some personal growth where politics is concerned, that you want in some way to develop a healthier relationship to politics. If that is one of your aspirations, you've come to the right place, or at least I believe you've come to the right place. As I often say these days when people ask me to make predictions about political developments, we'll see. I should probably introduce myself before I get too much further into this. I'm your host, Jack Miller, and I'm coming to you from the White Tiger Studio in Portland, Oregon. I currently teach political science at Portland State University, and I've been observing and teaching about American politics for over a quarter century. I should probably put in a word also about what the show isn't. It's not a discussion of current events or hot political issues or ongoing debates and controversy. There's plenty of that all over the media landscape. It's being done poorly in some places and extremely well in others, and I don't feel compelled to jump into that arena. What I do want to do is look at the world of politics with an eye on understanding the outrage and other powerful emotions that influence people's thoughts and actions. You'll hear people's opinions, of course, that's inevitable, but this isn't a show where my guests are going to be taking stands and defending them and arguing with their opponents. As I said, there's already plenty of that going on. I don't disparage that kind of political discourse. It's necessary, and it's very healthy if it's done well. It's just not what we're going to do here. A lot of episodes will feature me interviewing someone who's working in politics in some way. I'll bring on activists and public servants and political observers and discuss with them how they work with and make use of their outrage and try to find out what they've learned about themselves and about the world as they've grappled with the issues and outcomes that matter to them. Every once in a while, the show will be just me doing a few short monologues, talking about things that come up in my teaching and bubble up through my ongoing observation of the political world and people's interactions with it. I've been a college professor for 25 years, so I've had long-term exposure to youthful outrage. And I can say with some authority that youthful outrage is a truly renewable resource. So I'll share some of the things I say to my students when I'm confronted with their powerful feelings about the latest thing that spurred their outrage. For this first episode, rather than jumping right in with an interview or indulging in more of a monologue than I've already done, I decided to have my 15-year-old son Zane interview me. 
Zane and I have been discussing politics and philosophy and many other things for a long time, and he knows me pretty well. He's also a huge fan of podcasts of all kinds. I'd say he's way more of an expert on podcasts than I am. So for this first episode of the Pothole Problem Podcast, here's Zane Emerson interviewing me, Jack Miller. Welcome to your show. Well, thanks for having me, and I really appreciate you agreeing to interview me. Of course. All right, so let's just jump right into it. You've been a political science professor for a long time, like 20, 30 years? How long has it been? 25 years. 25 years. So how'd you get into studying politics, and what's kept you doing it for so long? Well, it's interesting because I majored in philosophy as an undergraduate, and mostly just because it was interesting to me. My friends in college were, they would mock me and they would be like, what are you going to do, open a philosophy shop? And (laughs) and my answer was like, I don't know, maybe I'll open a philosophy shop. Who knows? I just studied it because I really liked it. And then I liked college and learning and reading. So I decided to go to graduate school and I went to graduate school in philosophy. But I was always most interested in political and social philosophy. And so those were the classes that I took. And when I got to graduate school, I took a couple of classes in the political science department that were political philosophy classes. And what happened was the philosophy department at the University of Washington, where I went, gave me money to go there my first year, but they didn't have any money for me or any of the incoming students my year for the second year. It was kind of a bait and switch kind of thing financially. Like Mm -hmm. they gave us free first year grad school and we thought, oh, good, we're set. And then they didn't have the money. Almost everybody left the philosophy department. I left the philosophy department because the political science department needed people. They had teaching assistantships and I was already studying political philosophy anyway. So I moved over to the political science department and got my degree in political theory. But then I, you know, wanted to work after I got my degree and there's not a whole lot of work for political philosophy. So I ended up teaching American government because that's kind of the basic thing. There's tons of American government classes. There's lots of work in it. So I, in a way I got drafted into the American politics team and I found that I really liked it and that I was pretty good at it. So I started doing it. And the reason why I did it for so long, why I've done it for so long, is because I find it to be an area that I can understand. And I feel like I can explain it well. And at the same time, it doesn't drive me crazy. Honestly, politics is not that engaging to me. You know, I vote and I pay attention to what's going on. And of course, you know, I'm, you're being raised in a political household. We follow the presidential primaries and the debates and, you know, we, we keep up on all the issues. But I'm not truly engaged by politics in a deep way. Like, I don't consider myself involved in politics. And I actually think that that has helped me stay an American politics professor for so long. It's because I haven't burned out on my own outrage. If politics made me crazy, I don't think I could have been doing it for this long. So I think a lot of why I've stayed with it is that somehow I have the ability to understand it and explain it to other people, but it doesn't draw me in. It doesn't use up a lot of my emotional energy. It is intellectually stimulating to me and it's fun to do. And I know that it's a good thing to do. I know that my students get a lot out of what I am able to bring to them, the perspective and the ideas and the teachings that I have. So that's what's kept me in it for so long. And that's why I'm doing this podcast now, because I want to extend my teaching, my discussion of American politics beyond the classroom. What did you like or what spoke to you about philosophy or political philosophy when you're beginning to discover it and to learn about it? Well, you know, that's a great question. When I first started studying philosophy, I just I picked up books off my parents' shelves. My father went to an art school in the 1960s, and they also had like a great books course. And so he had all of these 
books on the shelf. And I was probably about your age, 15, 16 years old, when I started just pulling them down and reading them. And I just really liked philosophy. I liked Plato. I liked Kant. I wasn't particularly drawn to political philosophy when I started. But when I went to college and started taking classes, the, the political and social philosophy classes were the ones that were most interesting to me because they seemed to be relevant to life. Uh, like metaphysics and epistemology, they're kind of, you know, aesthetics, they're interesting, but to me, they were more distant, more abstract. And it was the political philosophy that seemed to have meat to it. You know, it wasn't just ideas and thoughts about our place in the universe and how we know things. It was important to how we act and organize ourselves. And so I was drawn to it for that reason. I think I have a pragmatic kind of mind that made that something that drew me in. So you talked about earlier about how you thought that if you were outraged about politics, you would have got burned out. Yes. Would you say that that is the norm for professors or that's not the norm? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that everybody who spends years and decades studying politics and outraged by it burns out. I think I would have. Uh, so I definitely don't want to speak for other people. Uh, you know, I've, right, I've been around other political science professors for a long time, and many of them have very strong commitments and ideas, and I don't know whether or not they're outraged or not, but I've definitely seen a lot of people that I've worked with who care an awful lot, and they're studying politics because they really are deeply engaged. And not to say that I'm unengaged or apathetic, I'm just not as immersed. So I think that I'm, I don't know, I, I don't want to make any kind of grand claims uh, about the field. But for me personally, I feel as though if I had spent 25 years myself being outraged and standing in the hurricane force winds of my students' outrage, it would have burned me out. It would have sent me somewhere else. Okay. I'll ask you the question you're going to ask all your guests. Let's try to shift topics a bit. What's something that used to outrage you but doesn't anymore? And what brought about the change? Well, that's an excellent question. And, you know, I, at first, I would love to be able to say, oh, I've never been outraged and I've always had this equanimity about politics. But that is not true. It has been a long time since I've had outrage. But when I was an undergraduate, I, I would say I was a classic angry young man in the sense that I would look at things in the world and I would be like, they're idiotic and they're exploitative and they're destructive and things shouldn't be this way. And I think that what outraged me was that things shouldn't be the way they were. And we as human beings had made it that way through our choices and our ideas. And our choices and ideas were fully within our own control. So why couldn't we make it different? So I spent a lot of time being outraged that if only people X did something, if only people you know, paid more attention to how destructive their, say, consumption patterns were, we, would, we wouldn't be running out of resources and running the earth into the ground. If only people understood that being disengaged from politics meant that other people got to make decisions for them. If only we understood that capitalism was this construction, not a natural system, we would be all of these if onlys. I'll confess that I was, uh, I was a libertarian for a spell, and then in a kind of what I think is a standard whiplash, I then w became a socialist for a spell. And in both of those spells, I was outraged that people didn't just see that they could make different choices, they could see the world differently, and if only they did the world would be a better place. And, you know, in my first stage, the libertarian paradise, and in my second stage, the socialist paradise. To me, those things were within human reach because 
what was going on in our world was fully a matter of our own choices and constructions. And so all we needed to do was rechoose and reconstruct and why weren't we? Ah, like I was, I was outraged because it wasn't as though most people were satisfied with how the world was. And yet they, in my view, had the capacity to transform that. What got me over that, I think, was getting deeper into my study of political philosophy, as well as uh, looking at human nature and connecting that with the things I was learning about actual politics, because I was also taking classes in specifically in like American politics, looking at that and saying, oh, <laughs> it's, it's not so simple that people can just change their minds, make different choices, reconstruct. There are a lot of dynamics that go into these sort of problematic outcomes. There's also, I came to appreciate that human beings while we do technically have the ability to just change our mind and make different decisions, that there are all kinds of things that are built into our psychology that make it difficult to step back from our own perspective and the uh, situation we find ourselves in and see the world differently. It's not just that people are idiots for not doing it. It's that evolutionarily and psychologically, we are kind of not locked into it. I still think we have flexibility, but it's very, we're very strongly suggested into continuing to see things the way they are, taking the world around us as a given. Somebody might explain to you, well, capitalism, of course, is a economic system that has been constructed by human choices. It's not natural. It doesn't exist in the same way that nature exists. Yet at the same time, I now realize, and I realized, I think early on, that there's a certain naturalism about the world we find around us that our psychology uh, gives us. We see the world as it is, and we kind of take it as the way it is supposed to be, or at least as beyond our control to change. So I think that once I began to appreciate the, I would say, true workings of human psychology and how that impacted our political behavior, that I became more understanding of the fact that the world wasn't the way I thought it should be. I also, I think, you know, having whiplash from libertarianism to socialism was able to then look around and say, oh, people have all kinds of different perspectives and views and ideologies and goals, things that they want. So there's diversity and that's going to produce conflict. So even if people are flexible in their minds, the way I always thought they should be, like you can just change your mind and you can change your... That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have some kind of uh, unanimity or at least high consensus to move in one particular direction or another. So I, I began to appreciate that conflict and competition is just built in to the human condition, at least when, when we're talking about politics. And so once I saw that, somehow, I, I don't know what the dynamic was, but somehow my outrage melted away because I, I think that I no longer was seeing the world falsely. I was seeing it more for the factors that were holding things, the status quo, the way it was, that was holding people back from making different decisions. And that allowed me to not be so outraged that they weren't doing things differently. It made it make sense to me that stuff was messed up and human beings weren't idiots for not fixing it. that your outrage and your what you went through how much was that product of like you as a person and like 
how much was it like a product of the time? I would absolutely say it was a product of me as a person because it, it wasn't a product of the time in the sense that, you know, I've now lived long enough and taught young people long enough to know that youthful outrage is probably our most renewable resource. It's, it's a sustainable form of energy production for sure. So I was, I would say, a typical young person in that sense that I was outraged that things weren't better. It wasn't as though things were ter- so terrible in the 80s or 90s that I was outraged. I mean, they were like they always are, bad could be better. Maybe they're not as bad as they are now. Maybe they're worse. I'm not going to make any kind of judgment, but there's always things to criticize and be annoyed at and outraged by and pissed off at. I think that I personally just had anger like a lot of people do, and I didn't understand my anger or seek to understand the emotional source of my feelings. I was very left brain, analytical, intellectual. And so I just thought, well, I'm right. That things are messed up and they wouldn't be messed up if only people made different decisions. I was all intellect. And the anger itself went unexamined. The outrage went unexamined. So it just was able to persist. And really, it wasn't until my understanding, my intellect broadened out from looking at the world and saying, well, it's messed up and people ought to just act differently to seeing what the barriers were and the dynamics that produced these kind of problematic outcomes. So I left-brained my way into less outrage and I had left-brained my way into outrage in the first place. Let's go on to the arguably the most fun question. What's something that outrages you now? Yeah, you know, I knew you were going to ask that. And, you know, you spend a lot of time with me and you're in the car with me an awful lot. So there's really, I have nothing to hide from you. But I will say that I do not feel outrage anymore. I would say my most recent forms of outrage have been ridiculously petty things like people who take 20 items into the 10 item or less grocery (laughs) line. And I just, uh, you know, people being self-absorbed and self-centered and disrespectful in a kind of just casual, unreflective kind of way. Those are the things that most recently outraged me. Yet, I I feel like I'm over that too, because I I also understand. I see myself doing the same thing. You know, like I, I don't take more than 10 items into the 10 item expressly, but I'm sure that when I'm being self-absorbed or when my mind is on something else, I do something that is seemingly selfish or seemingly self-important that may outrage other people. And so I now have that kind of perspective where I'm like, well, I know I'm doing it and other people are doing it. I don't know what's going on. That person who's got 20 items in the 10 item line, maybe they're not doing it on purpose because they just think that they're so important that they have to rush through the grocery store. Maybe their mind is on something else. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they just found out some bad news or if there's this tricky problem at work or if they're having a difficult time with their teenagers and they're trying to figure out how to get them to clean their rooms. I don't know what's going on with that person. And so I might disagree with their choice, but I'm not going to be outraged that they're making that choice. So uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm done with outrage. And, and I hope that that's a permanent condition. And one of the reasons why I'm starting this podcast is because I feel as though it's, it's valuable for me to be able to look at the world of politics without outrage, an area that it for sure is full of things that are outrageous, that are legitimately sources of outrage for people. I'm not going to judge people who are outraged and say, you shouldn't be outraged. But I, I think that because I have this perspective of 25 years of teaching it and being at a place where I can be, I would say, relatively serene about the stuff that is for sure outrageous out there in the world, that it's, it's a good time for me and maybe I can actually 
be helpful to people who are seeking to do something different with their outrage, to not be controlled by it, but to hang on to it, but make it more productive, have a healthier relationship to the things that make them crazy about the world. Okay. Thanks for um, sharing all your stuff. It was really interesting to talk to you and hear your perspectives. Well, I appreciate your insightful questions. And, you know, I look forward to a long life with you of discussing all kinds of stuff. And I'm ready for you to become even more outraged about stuff than you are. You can be a libertarian, you can be a socialist, you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, and you can bring your outrage to me. And, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hoping, this is my parental aspiration, I'm hoping that I'll be able to stand in the hurricane force wind of your outrage, as I have done for 25 years with my students, and be able to provide some kind of useful perspective yeah. to you. I can be a libertarian, I can be a socialist. The only thing I can't be is a Patriots fan. But The only thing is... you can't be is a Patriots fan. <laughs> That's exactly right. That might actually spur me to true outrage. <laughs> All right, well, it was great talking to you. Great talking with you. Thanks for interviewing me. Of course, thank you. Woke up the other day, and I was the man. After years of getting away with whatever I can. One last word for this episode. In the interview, I didn't get a chance to talk about what the pothole problem is and why I'm calling this podcast the Pothole Problem Podcast. The pothole problem is something that I've talked about in my politics classes in a lot of different contexts. And it's really pretty simple, and it does have to do with potholes. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, people driving along the road, they hit a pothole, they go, goddamn government can't even fix the potholes. And at the same time, almost nobody, probably in fact, zero people ever are driving down the road, a nice smooth highway and says to themselves, thank you, the government for this beautiful smooth highway that gets me where I'm going and that brings goods and services around and that makes the way of life that I enjoy possible. It's really just a very simple form of a negativity bias where we tend to see the bad things as opposed to the good things. There's an evolutionary reason why human beings would be predisposed to have a negativity bias. You know, if there's a stick that is on the side of the trail and we say, oh, that's just a stick, I'm fine, it's a stick. But if every once in a while that stick is a snake, then boom, the snake bites us and we're dead. If we look at every stick and say, ah, it might be a snake and we jump away, then of course we're going to survive when it's a stick and we're also going to survive when it's a snake. If you don't do that, you're only going to survive the times that it's a stick. That's one source of the sort of general built-in negativity bias in the human psychology that impacts the way we look at politics that creates the pothole problem and other forms of negativity bias. So it's completely understandable, uh, you know, in the environment in which we evolved, the problem is, is that in the environment that we've created for ourselves, civilization, the political system, particularly a democratic political system, where everyday people have some voice in the running of their government, the psychology that drives everyday people to say, goddamn government can't even fix the potholes, but at the same time, not have them say, thank you, the government, for this beautiful, smooth road that makes my way of life possible, that is problematic because it leads to a perception of politics that's infused with negativity and that can generate negative emotions like outrage and anger and frustration. And those negative emotions have a pretty major impact on the way people think about the political system and think about themselves. And it has an influence on the way they make choices and the kinds of actions they take in the political system. 
So the pothole problem exists, and it's particularly acute in a democratic society. It's particularly acute in a democratic society with a political culture that is kind of already leans in the anti-authoritarian direction, which I would say is true of the American political culture, that we as a people are predisposed to be distrustful of the government. This goes all the way back to the revolutionary era. And then we are reminded of ways in which the government is failing us, and we do not spend a lot of time reminding ourselves of the ways in which the government is actually serving us. That creates a skewed perception. That is the pothole problem, or at least that's my particular interpretation of it. Other people, when they hear the words pothole problem, actually think of it in slightly different ways. And I really look forward to hearing from my guests what their particular take on the pothole problem is and what they think it does for their outlook and for the democratic society in which we live in general. Okay, well, that's the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. I'm going to be here once a week for the next 10 weeks, interviewing people and sometimes doing monologues on my own. I want to finish off today's episode the way I'll finish off a lot of episodes uh, with some music. This song is by a friend of mine, Greg Weinger. He recorded it right here in the White Tiger studio where I'm talking to you and where many of my interviews will take place. This is, I think, an appropriate first song for this podcast, Sticking It to the Man. Thank you, Greg Weinger, and thank you to everybody listening. I hope to have you back here next week. Woke up the other day, and I was the man. After years of getting away with whatever I can. Look my buddies in the eyes. Said, fellas, it's been nice. But I know what y'all been up to that ain't right. Now when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. I ain't taking it in the can, won't turn the other cheek. Get your collective asses in line, or tonight I'll have you working overtime. When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me. Those two-hour lunches are a thing of the past. And you'll find my coffee-stained dockers out in the trash. Now you see I'm dressed for success My shirt is tucked and my pants are pressed My mustache is trimmed, my hair is all compressed When you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me I ain't taking it in the can, turn the other cheek Check your time cards if you're wise both of my eyes on those office supplies When you're sticking it to the man You're sticking it to me Ain't fun, right or wrong, I'll answer what I've done. 
I had to make some layoff cuts And the time has come So when you're sticking it to the man You're sticking it to me I ain't taking it in the can Won't turn the other cheek Some folks say it's a sin But I ain't sold out I bought in When you're sticking it to the man You're sticking it to me when you're sticking it to the man, you're sticking it to me.